Mark 6, 1-6 Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Thanks be to God. Our Father in heaven, we uh, do thank and praise you for your word which gives new life. We thank you so much for your word by which your spirit moves and works. We thank you so much that you speak. You are not silent. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to be good listeners this morning. Help us to be those who not only want to, but can listen carefully to what you say. And as we listen, Father, don't just fill our heads with knowledge, but fill our hearts with love. That we might know you and love you and know how to live before you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Earlier this year, um, Netflix released a show called Is It Cake? Has anybody watched Is It Cake? Good. This is going to make these next few moments much more comfortable. Uh, The premise is is pretty simple. Uh, What they do is they get a a group of bakers together, and uh, they're very good bakers, and they bake cakes that look like other things. A suitcase or a bowling ball, or these sort of things. Then they bring in some judges, and the judges have got a, a whole lot of these things in front of them, and um, uh, one of them is cake, and all the others aren't. And so the judges have to guess, is it cake? Hence, hence the name. Now, I mentioned this not as um, some form of deep reflection on the state of our society, although it probably is, uh, nor sort of uh, condemnation of the sort of people that we are that we would pay money to have that entertain us, and I want to be quick to point out that just like you, I have not watched it either. Um, But I saw the ads for it, and I was tempted to watch it, uh, because some of the cakes look amazing, like genuinely amazing, and often the judges can't tell the difference between the cakes and the the other things. Imagine imagine you were there, and um, uh, you had that put in front of you, and you were told you're going to have some cake. And that was plonked down. It'd mess you up, wouldn't it? Like, uh, if, if, if you had that in front of you, and then that happened. And it is actually cake. Because you, your mind would be saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> Fool me once. That, that's, that's, a, that's an eggplant. I know that that doesn't taste like cake. We wouldn't know what to do. Our taste buds would be very, very confused. Uh, that's because we bring, as people, we bring preconceived ideas to nearly everything that we engage with in life. We all carry these expectations, these, these assumptions into nearly every situation. We expect eggplant to taste a certain way, and it's, it's, not, it's not like cake, unfortunately. And those expectations, those 
preconceived ideas are often a very, very good thing. Not only in food, but in all of life. You think about it. Our expectations and assumptions are helpful for allowing us to interact well with what's going on in front of us. It means that we don't have to go back to first principles on every single thing that we engage with. We carry with us these expectations, these assumptions of what is normal, what is usual. And those things, that generally serves us well. But not always. See, if you didn't know that there's a possibility that that eggplant was made of cake, you wouldn't ask the question, is it cake? Therefore, you would miss out. And as a rule, in my, I've found in life, it's generally not a good thing to miss out on cake. You take it where you can get it. See, so expectations and preconceived ideas, our assumptions sometimes, they cause us to miss out on things. And that is what happened in that reading from Mark that we saw this morning. A group of people who had preconceived ideas and expectations about Jesus, who carried a set of assumptions into their engagement with him, and because of that, they missed out. And so as we look at them, and as we think about how they engage with Jesus, and as we look at Jesus and see how he engages with them, my prayer, my prayer for you, my prayer for you over the past few days actually, has been that we might, by God's grace be able to assess our preconceived ideas. We might pull out our assumptions out of our hearts and minds and look at them about who Jesus really is. And that as we do that, we might see him more clearly. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, it'd be very, very helpful to open up to Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you've probably got a phone. You can go to biblegateway.com and uh, search up Mark 6, you you will find it. Uh, Because you uh, here at at Abide, as I understand it, have been working through Mark's gospel over these weeks. And so uh, you're you're getting familiar with the book, which which is excellent. You will have seen, I'm sure, over these weeks, that Mark's purpose in the first part of his account of Jesus is that he's been putting a question on the table in front of us over and over again. The question is, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? As you see him forgiving sin and casting out demons, as he, as he teaches with this authority that people have never heard before, the question is asked over and over again, sometimes explicitly in the text, as characters say, who is this? And sometimes implicitly, as we as readers are forced to ask the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? Where does he get this authority? How can he do these things? Who is this? How do you answer? Not the person sitting next to you. Not mum and dad. How do you answer? See, Jesus is doing things and saying things that only God has the right and the power to do and say. So who is Jesus? What do you make of him? We come this morning in these first... Uh, verses of chapter 6, to a really key point in Mark's presentation of Jesus, of who he is. We come to a key moment because Jesus comes home. He returns to his town of Nazareth in the northern part of Israel. And so given this big question on the table that Mark's been building up over these weeks for us, who is Jesus? We would expect, wouldn't we, that the people in his hometown, those who really know him, we would surely expect, oh, from them, we will get a good answer. Well, come with me to verse 1. Jesus uh, left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples, his followers. 
When the Sabbath came, that's a Saturday, a holy day, he began to teach in the synagogue, the, the local gathering place for Jews, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, nothing there is out of the ordinary for Jesus. We've already known from Jesus uh, himself, in fact, that he said, the reason I've come is to preach. It's no surprise that he's doing that here. Uh, we already know that people are amazed at his teaching. Uh, we've been told that earlier as well. He taught with authority, not like the other teachers of the law. And so Jesus has come home and he's just doing what he's done everywhere else. And just like everywhere else, people are amazed. You see that there, halfway through verse 2? They are amazed. And those amazed people make two assessments of Jesus. And we should be very interested in these because Mark's purpose is that we might make an assessment of Jesus. We might come to an answer as to who he is. So, so what's their assessment? What is the assessment of the hometown people? End of verse 2. Do you see it? Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? See, their first, the first part of their assessment is that, that he's got great wisdom. They can see it. He's got great power. They can see it. There is something incredibly unusual about Jesus. They recognise that he just isn't normal, if we can say that without being rude. That's the first part of their assessment. But do you notice there's a second part as well? Do you see it there, if you keep reading? Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So this is the other part of their assessment. Oh, we know this guy. This is Carpenter, Mary's lad. Remember his brother, remember his sisters? They, they lived down the road. Oh, you could read this, I think, as almost like the classic thing that we Kiwis are so good at, this kind of ref- reflected glory. Uh, I grew up in the same suburb, suburb as, uh, as John Key. He was a number of years before me, but same suburb in Christchurch. You're from the same city as the current Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah, you are. Everybody, don't we? Everybody in New Zealand has got someone famous that their cousin went to school with. Right? We do that. We kind of have this reflected glory. We all know someone who's famous. Uh, there's almost that sense, I wonder, here with Jesus. There's two assessments of him. And because there are two assessments, there are two responses. You notice that? An assessment of who Jesus is necessarily leads to a response to Jesus. An assessment of Jesus leads to a response to Jesus. We've already seen the first response. Verse 2, many who heard him were amazed. They were astonished. But there's another response. It's there at the end of verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, Mary's son, the brother, the sister? And they took offence at him. Uh, It literally says they were scandalised by him. They were shocked at him. They couldn't get over him. This also sounds like that classic Kiwi thing that we do, right? In response to having someone famous we know, we knock them down to size. We think to ourselves, well, we know who they are. Who do they think they are being good at something, being different to the rest of us? See, the people here are probably also amazed at what they see and what they hear of Jesus. But this is just Jesus. We know him. Who does he think he is? 
He's just one of us, hometown. You see, they think that they already know what he's like. They've got these preconceived ideas about Jesus. And so what they see of him, what they hear from him, it doesn't match up with what they think he should be like. And so they take offence at him. And they can't see who he really is. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But just notice that there have been two assessments of Jesus. There have been two responses to Jesus. And then Jesus reacts in two different ways. He says, verse 4, A prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now Jesus quotes to them what is a well-known saying at the time, that a prophet is dishonoured only at home. Uh, He's not excusing them, I don't think. He's not saying, well, it's it's okay that you guys don't accept me, everybody else does, but you, you don't need to. No, he simply acknowledges that their response isn't unexpected, that it's a hard thing to see a prophet honoured in a hometown. It's not unexpected, but it is inexcusable. And so we're told bizarrely that Jesus couldn't do any miracles there except heal a few people, which is odd, isn't it? Because in my mind, healing people is a miracle. (laughs) So what's going on? Well, if we think about it, what have the miracles done in Mark's gospel so far? They've shown us who Jesus is. When Jesus calms a storm with a word, he does what only God has the power to do. When Jesus forgives sin, he does only what God has the right to do. When Jesus gives life, well, only God does that. And so all the miracles of Jesus have been proving to us, showing to us, putting evidence in front of us as to who Jesus is. They're validating, as it were, his identity. But what's just happened here in Nazareth? Well, people have already made a decision as to who Jesus is. He's just the carpenter. He's Mary's boy, the brother of these lads. His sisters live down the road. He's just Jesus. We already know who he is. And so it would seem that Apart from one or two miracles, maybe done privately, maybe done because in God's grace he knows that one or two may change their minds. Jesus Jesus can't prove who he is any more than he's already done. They already know that he does miracles. That's made clear in verse 2. He doesn't need to do any more to prove who he is, to validate who he is. It's all there on the table. It's all in front of them. And so if one of his reactions is to not do any more miracles... The other reaction is there in verse 6. Do you see it? He was amazed at their lack of faith. They were amazed. Many were amazed when they heard him at the beginning. And here is Jesus amazed at them, but for all the wrong reasons. Amazed that they didn't believe. Amazed that they've seen him, that they've heard him, that with their own mouths they've confessed that, that, that he isn't just any man. And I think it was their preconceived ideas of who he should be, who they think he is, 
which blind them to believing the truth which is right in front of them, that Jesus, yes, this mum that they grew up with, yes, this one whose brothers live down the road, but this Jesus is God himself in the flesh. And therefore we can't just treat him like the bloke we grew up with, like the guy who lived down the road. We must throw ourselves on our knees and worship him and follow him and trust him and obey him. So there are two assessments of Jesus in this passage, two reactions to Jesus and two responses by Jesus. As we come to a close, what does it mean for us? I wonder if I might offer a word to to three groups of people. All of us, I think, at one point or another, may find ourselves in one of those groups. The first is a word to you if you are a dejected disciple. A dejected disciple. And most of us, I put myself firmly in this camp, have had times and seasons in our lives where we find it very hard to believe in Jesus. We get down. We get dejected. We, we think we don't believe strongly enough. We doubt. We struggle. We, we, we think we're on the outside for following Christ. And in those times, I, I know for myself, and I, I think it's true for many, we often think that the answer is to have a great experience of God. If God would only make himself clear to me, If I could only see Jesus, if I could only see a miracle, if God would only give me a sign. Oh, imagine if I'd been alive when Jesus was around. How lucky the disciples were to see him and listen to him and hang out with him. Well, then I would really believe. Then my faith would be stronger. Then everything would be great. My dejected friend, if that's you, just notice from this passage... But seeing Jesus is absolutely no guarantee of believing in Jesus. Viewing a miracle is no guarantee of belief. Growing up with Jesus, hanging out with him, knowing his family is no guarantee. In fact, you've got to say it would seem it puts you in a worse position, in fact. If you're a dejected disciple, remember, the important thing isn't seeing. It's believing Jesus wants people to believe in him. He is amazed at their lack of faith. That's what he wants. He wants people to put their trust in him. And he has given us all the evidence that is needed. Trust him. Don't look to your own faith, but look to the one in whom your faith is in. And ask God to strengthen your faith in this one. First word, to dejected disciples. But the second word, and I think probably the the big word that comes out of this passage is a word to the complacent Christian. The great problem which we've seen this morning is that people thought they had Jesus all figured out. They thought they knew him. They had preconceived ideas about what he was like, what he stood for, what he should do, who he was. And those preconceived ideas, those assumed expectations, that former knowledge meant that they actually refused to accept the truth that was right in front of them. And there are many who come along to church who call themselves Christians who are in the same boat. They think they've got Jesus all figured out. They think they know what he's like. They think they know what he wants. They've got their system of belief. They're very happy and comfortable with it. And they've become complacent. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not talking here about the person who is, this is not a biblical term, but I think it's an important one, who are faithful plotters. 
uh, the person who loves Jesus and just gets on with following him, the faithful plodder. I love to be, I'd long to be a faithful plodder, right? Just a day in, day out, trusting in Jesus kind of normal Christian. I think there's a feeling of, uh, around the traps a little bit at the moment that the Christian life is, is this series of extraordinary highs and lows. And unless you're kind of in this time of great doubt and angst or ecstatic experience, there's something wrong with you. But no, 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 the daily faithful plodding life of humbly trusting and serving Christ is wonderful. I'm not talking about you. That's not complacency. I'm talking about the person who thinks that they've already got Jesus sorted, who doesn't really engage with the Bible because they know what it says, who doesn't wrestle with God's revelation of himself with Scripture. They might read a bit and go, yeah, I know what that means. There isn't much thinking about what it means to follow Christ at home, at work, with friends, in the neighbourhood, at the school gate. They don't let themselves be challenged by what Jesus says and does because they've already got Jesus figured out. They already know what he wants, what he's like. A person can even like that, can even know lots about the Bible. They might have all the right theology. They might be well connected and involved and even serving at church. But in their hearts, their attitude, they've got Jesus pegged. They've got him contained. They know what he's like, what he wants, and they'll leave him there. And there's a complacency. I... I fear there is a great danger of this the longer you've been a Christian. It's a real danger for those of us who have grown up in Christian families or have been around the church a long time. There's an increased risk of being like those people from Jesus' hometown who think that they know all there is to know about Jesus. And so what is needed is the opposite of complacency. Do you know what the opposite of complacency is? It's humility. The answer is to look at Jesus with a low view of ourselves, a low view of our knowledge and our understanding. It's to come to him with an expectation that he will amaze us. And it is to insert the scriptures into the very heart of our experience of God. For it is only in the scriptures that we can with absolute confidence meet Jesus We have no truly trustworthy access to him outside of the Bible. See, the word to the complacent Christian is humble yourself. Go back to the Bible. Don't try and master the Bible. Let the Bible master you. Humble yourself and examine your preconceived ideas, your assumptions of the word of God made flesh in light of the word of God written down. The great confidence we have is that as we do that, as God's spirit who inspired the scriptures when it was written, that he also illuminates our hearts as we read. As God who longs for us to humble ourselves before his son as he works and we will see Jesus as he really is. He will reveal more and more of himself to us. We will see our saviour, the son of God himself. And my prayer for us is that we will be amazed once more. That we will believe afresh, just as Jesus would have us. But I wonder if I might close with one final short word to the arrogant observer. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But you didn't think you'd come to church and potentially be called arrogant this morning. Who is this clown from Christchurch? Uh, I realise it sounds harsh to suggest that someone may be an arrogant observer. But I chose the phrase carefully. 
Because to think that we can just observe Jesus, we can hear him speak and watch his miracles and read his word, keep him at arm's length, to just observe him and not make an assessment of him, not come to a personal decision about him, not actually answer the question which has been asked, who is this? If we think we can just leave that out there and not do anything with it, friends, that is arrogance. To dismiss Jesus as an irrelevancy. Just to, to relegate him as some sort of ancient prophet. It's, it's arrogance. Because the, the data before us doesn't allow us to do that. The way that Jesus speaks and acts, the way he's presented to us, it doesn't give us the option to just leave him out there. He's either God, as he claims to be, or he's not, and he's lying. There's no middle ground, do you see? There's no fence to sit on. There's, there's no kind of shades of grey. Well, maybe he's a little bit God. No, no, it's a binary category. It's like being pregnant. You're either God or you're not. Either he's the Lord, the ruler and commander of all that is, including us, or he's not. All the evidence before us that Mark has gathered and presented points to us to say that he is God. But notice what sort of God he is. He's a God who welcomes the weak. He welcomes the humble. He invites those who trust in him with a shaky faith, a, a, a faith riddled with questions, a faith which longs for more understanding. He welcomes that kind of humble faith and he offers forgiveness and he offers peace and he offers rest. I promise you, the likes of which you've never known. Don't be an arrogant observer. You don't need to be a dejected disciple. I beg you, don't be a complacent Christian. Rather, would you come and be a faithful follower of Jesus, the Christ? Shall we pray to him together now? Let me give you a moment as we come before our Lord to consider where you sit. To consider how you answer the question, who is this? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for presenting us with Jesus. We thank you for his teaching with authority. We thank you for his power over creation, over death over our guilt and our shame. And Father, we pray that you'd forgive us where we have become complacent, where our preconceived ideas of Jesus have ruled over how he has presented to us. And we pray that you would humble us. Whether we've been Christians for two minutes or 20 years, we pray that you'd humble us. That we might come to the Lord Jesus expecting to be amazed by him humbling ourselves beneath him that he might rule over us, granting us forgiveness, directing our lives, calling the shots, and that you might shape and form us as faithful followers of him, our King and our Saviour. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.